0: Bismillah rahman ar-Rahim, wa s-salatu wa s-salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa s taslim taslima kithira. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ahmadullah Subhanahu wa ta'ala wa a wa and wa nasta'gfiruhu wa na'udhu billahi in shururi anfusina wa sayyati a'amalina. Man yahdihillah falamudhamla lah, wa man yudlil falahadiya lah. Wa s-salawatuhu wa s-salamu ala rasulillah ala afdali khalqillah. Allahumma alamnama yanfa'una wa anfa'una bima'alamtana wa zidna ilma wa qurra zidni ilma alhamdulillah assalamualaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu Ramadan mubarak alayna wa alaykum wa ala al-muslimin jami'an may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala insha'Allah bless your Ramadan and I uh, want to thank everybody for their support of the college uh, we're really trying our best to provide for our community uh, really the best uh uh, that we can inshallah of our tradition and uh, of the beautiful teachings of our Prophet sallallahu so The the month of Ramadan is always a month of going back to the book of Allah for those who have neglected it neglected it for the uh, the other 11 months out of the year and For those who actually have a practice. It's a way of increasing it intensifying it. I'll give you an example Sheikh Abdullah al Qadi, a very dear brother from Arabia who's in the eastern province, he is a hafiz of Quran and he recites the Quran every month. In Ramadan, he'll recite it several times. Uh, I know Sheikh uh, Dr. Abdullah al Ma'tuq, who's a Kuwaiti scholar, who actually does 30 khatam every Ramadan. Um, And um, it's not an exaggeration. So, Inshallah, we should at least, if we, if we have the practice of doing it once a year, we should at least attempt to do it twice during Ramadan, which was the traditional practice of many, many people. That was the average Muslim's practice, um, not the exemplars, but really the average Muslim. So I'll give you an example. In the country of Morocco, where I was fortunate enough to study, which I think has a very beautiful tradition, a tradition that has a great deal of sunnah, embedded in it uh, in ways that even the moroccans are not always aware of a few examples the yellow the bulga that they wear the yellow shoes there's actually a hadith from ibn abbas about the prophet's yellow sandals the fact that they they wear the silham which is the rida that the prophet sallallahu wore uh, the fact that they pray still on reed mats which according to imam Malik, it's a sunnah to pray on something Directly on the earth, like adobe or uh, a reed mat, but something that actually comes from the earth. So it was considered in the Medheb Mandub to do that. Uh, and now we know things like grounding. Uh, you can you can look that up. There's people that are arguing that we actually need to ground on natural earth with our bare skin every day just to uh, stay healthy. So. One of the things that the Moroccans do, which is quite extraordinary, is that they have a Khatam that they do every month. And they begin the Khatam on the first of the lunar month. So today they would be on either the second or the third Jews, depending. They started on Sunday. There are other people started on Saturday. I think Jordan also started on Sunday. Um, The vast majority of the Middle East started on Saturday. People have extraordinary eyesight in some places, but the, um, in America, I think most people started on Saturday. So you would start the, the Jews like they do in Tarawih on that day. In Morocco, the Ministry of Awqaf estimates that they actually do a Khatam of 250,000 just in the Masajid alone every month. And I think that's quite extraordinary, just in terms of protecting the country, just to have that level of protection because they always make these amazing du'as at the end when they do the khatam. So if you don't have a practice of Qur'an I hope that you'll use this month to establish a practice that you continue on after the month Even if it's half a page a day uh, there, there should be some commitment to the Qur'an So that you don't fall under the category of when the Prophet says, uh, the wasallam said Rabbi Inna Qur'an Mahjura. You know, oh my lord, my people have abandoned this Qur'an. Imam al sadi in his tafsir, he says that they, they don't recite it, they don't practice its teachings, um, and they don't reflect on it. So we don't want to be people of abandonment, of hijran al-Qur'an. We want to be people of the Qur'an. Ahlullah uh, are the people of the Qur'an. The Prophet said in a Sahih hadith, uh, أهل أهل that the people of the Quran Are the the people of God And his elect That the, In other words they're the people that he Has chosen to have a special Place with him So what I wanted to do was Really continue on From last year About the jewels of the Quran uh, That Imam al Ghazali wrote So I'm going to do a brief summary Inshallah of uh, last year's um, program and I, and I hope for some of you that did not see it last year that maybe perhaps you could go back because I know it's available. So the, uh, the, the, the Jawahir, Imam al-Ghazali uh, did the, uh, the Jawahir of the Quran as a, a way of essentializing the message of the Quran. And we're living in a time where uh, essentialized uh, aspects of things are not promoted. So the essential nature of the self, the essential nature of gender, gender, the essential nature of the human being, these are things that people are discarding. But our Islamic tradition is a tradition of essences. We we believe in Dawat, we believe in Jawahir. And and so Imam al-Ghazari wanted to, to really look at what was the essential message of the Book of Allah And he identified it in in an extraordinarily brief and concise text But incredibly compelling for anybody who studies it It's worth a serious study This is a a short book But it's stunning in its presentation of the essential Qur'an So first of all, just to recap about Imam al-Ghazali Imam al-Ghazali, Abu Hamid He's Muhammad ibn Muhammad ibn Muhammad uh, his laqab was Abu Hamad al Ghazali. He was born in 450, so he was born in the mid uh, half of the of the fifth century, and he dies in 505, after Hijra, which is 1111 in the Christian era. He is arguably, after the Salaf, the single most important Muslim that ever lived, and that, and that is not a hy- hyperbolic statement. That that is a a statement that could be substantiated with a great deal of evidence. Imam al-Ghazadi is unfortunately in the modern era, he's been reduced to, a, 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 a in, in, in some circles, a Sufi deviant, uh, which is a really bad sign of the times because he has been honored in the last thousand years by our community as really hujjat al-Islam, <laughs> the proof of islam and the reason for that is because he was almost i would argue that it's really ijma that he was the mujaddid of that century and you can see he he's at that that 6th uh, century of hijra he's considered the mujaddid but he is the single identified mujaddid in our tradition that did tajdid of all three aspects of the faith so he did tashdid of iman, he did tashdid of islam, and he did tashdid of ihsan. And nobody else has that um, distinction. So the, the the single most important work that he wrote is not the ihya. It's, it's the mustasfa. And it was actually his last work. So it's the culmination of his intellectual brilliance, of his intellectual journey. And that book is actually a book of usul of, al-fiqh. He had the great fortune and distinction of being the best student of one of the most brilliant jurists in Islamic history, the great Shafi'i scholar, uh, Imam Al-Haramin uh, al juwayni al juwayni introduces really, even though it was understood prior to Imam al juwayni but he introduces the Maqasid tradition in a way that it really hadn't been introduced before. So there's an identification of the universals of Islam, the preservation of the uh, of the dean of life of uh, reason itself of property and of of uh, family and and uh, family they also include uh, human dignity because dignity comes out of the family um, so the ird, which was added on later uh, is really covered in the idea of the nesib or lineage or family so he introduces an extraordinary new way of looking at the quran and at the sunnah of the prophet ﷺ. and he introduces many very important technical terms that had not been used before so he really goes deep into what's called ta'lil which is finding the reasons for rulings he goes deep into what's called manat, which is an approach to uh, causation in which one determines uh, the munasabah of, of the the, uh, the appropriateness of the uh, ruling being applied in a given situation because sometimes the appropriate ruling is not to apply the normative ruling but actually to suspend it. So he developed that and that's where Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya uh, who is arguably one of the mujadideen of usul in our time uh, and is a master of the Ghazali and Usuli. Tradition. this is one of the things that he has focused on because of its importance and centrality to making Islam uh, always viable and always relevant, no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in. So Imam al-Ghazari is born in Central Asia in Tuz. And Central Asia is one of those places in, in in the Islamic tradition, and it's still one of the most important places in the world. In fact, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski considered it the single most important place in the world. He said, whoever controlled Central Asia will control the world, which is why there's so much interest in Central Asia. It also uh, happens to be uh, the Saudi Arabia of micro minerals. So there's a great uh, desire to uh, control this place so they have access like Afghanistan and places like that. But he was born in Tuz. Uh, he goes to uh, Nesabor and studies there, Nishapur. Uh, also to uh, Gorgan, which uh, Gorgan was a, a place near the Caspian Sea that has amazing scholars, Sharif al uh Abdul Qadir al-Ghorjani. I mean, there's really stunning scholars that come from this area, and there's a, there's a book that was written in English on the enlightenment of the Central Asian Muslims, the extraordinary output, mathematically, scientifically, astronomically, but also uh, in terms of Quran commentary and, and so many many things, he then goes to Baghdad, and uh, he he uh, he becomes part of the coterie of uh, Nizam al-Mulk, and he ends up teaching and becoming the dean at uh, Baghdad at the famous Nizamiyah, and this is where the Sunni tradition really begins to solidify and spread. Um, and then he also uh, has a spiritual crisis. He travels to Damascus. He uh, uh, acts as a janitor in one of the mosques there, lives uh, inside a very small room uh, in the mosque. He goes to Jerusalem. Uh, In Jerusalem, he writes a really, really important book uh, in Aqidah. Uh, He then makes his pilgrimage. He goes back to Baghdad. And then finally, he goes back to Central Asia, where he has a small group of students that he studies with. One of the few students that he studied with, uh, that he taught in Baghdad, and one of his last students was the great Maliki jurist uh, and saints, qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi. And if you read his Rihla, his description of coming into the presence of Imam al-Ghazali is one of the most extraordinary descriptions of the meeting of a, a, a great master because Uh, Qadi Abu Bakr was already an accomplished scholar by that time, but when he actually goes in to the presence of Imam Al-Ghazad, he said it was as if he had been living in darkness his whole life, and he saw the sun rise before him and dispel all of the darkness of his time prior to that. And it's it's very powerful when you read it. You can really sense uh, the greatness of the man. So, he wrote so many books, he's got over 70 uh, books that are uh, confirmed and attributed to him and many others that uh, people claim he wrote. But among the books is the Jawahir. And so that's the one uh, that uh, we looked at last year. Um, so 40 years, he actually died relatively young. The, um, the Imam al project, in other words, what he was attempting to do was one, what we call in the West, the liberal arts, which, and this is my contention. And I think increasingly a lot of Muslims are understanding this and seeing this is that our tradition is rooted in these fundamental arts that enable people to think qualitatively and quantitatively. So he wrote in these arts, he wrote, he has several books in logic, he didn't need to do any grammar books because there were so many grammar books that had been done at that time. Um, also, he was living at a time where there were some really great rhetoricians. So, but he he really saw the importance of logic as a central uh, art to be introduced into kalam and into um, usul al fiqh. So he really, he, in his great mustasfa, and he wrote uh, four books in this area, but in his great mustasfa, he actually, and by the way, his, his crit, critic in philosophy, uh, Ibn Rushd, actually did a summary of the mustasfa. So he had great respect for his, um, his book, the mustaswa. But anyway, Imam al-Ghazali, um, in, in, in the mustaswa, the first 40 pages, uh, is is basically an introduction to into logic, but he uses uh, vocabulary that people would not see it as directly being from logic because there was a lot of animus towards logic. And I have a very interesting anecdote, which is a true story. The w- one of my teachers was uh, uh, Muhammad al-Muhtar, uh, uh, who was the son of Muhammad Ramin Ashinqili. Uh, he was a beautiful man, a brilliant scholar, and a Usuli. But he told me when I was studying with him in Medina 40 years ago, he told me that his father, when he taught Usul al fiqh, he taught from that Ghazalian approach. And because the students uh, in Medina University were prohibited from learning logic, he actually wrote a book that he called Adab al Baath wal Munadhara which they accept, but it's a, it's a book of logic. So he actually taught them logic without telling them they were learning logic, which, I mean, if you don't see the irony in that, it's, it's uh, <laughs> very interesting. I have that book, it's a good book too. So he, Iman, Islam, and Ihsan, Kalam, legal theory, the inner path, and then refutation. So he was mo- mostly focused on a constructive project which was to revive the three aspects of Islam in a time where he thought there was a lot of what he called mutarassimun, the formalists. They were trapped in just the the outward rituals and rites of Islam, and they'd lost that inner dimension. So through that, he uh, writes in kalam, in usul, and then in ihsan. But he also had a a deconstructive um, uh, project, which was to refute uh, refute the Peripatetic philosophers. So people say, "Oh, he was against philosophy." He was actually dealing with one school of philosophy, the the methodology of the philosophers. He actually appreciated, but he was he uh, looked at these twenty aspects in his book uh, Tahafut al-Falasifa, Mukasid al-Falasifa. He wrote first, and then he wrote the Tahafut, and then the occultists. So he really uh, had a uh, a. Uh, a focus on the botania. These are the esotericists that turn Islam into an esoteric religion and see the outward as a, something negative. Uh, that oh, That's for simple people that don't really understand the truths. So th- that was his project. In Book 8 of the Ihya, he has the etiquette of the Quranic recitation, which I recommend reviewing every once in a while. It's a very important until these things become really well-established. But uh, he has adab of tirawat al-Qur'an. So the first bab is the fadl al-Qur'an, wa ahluhu, the virtues of the Quran and its folk. And then he looks at the, just the outward aspects, like wudu, not carrying it unless you're in um, The And then also fi a'mal al-batin fi the mental task, tadabbur, and to really be focused. And then also in the fifth one, He looks at understanding the Qur'an and its uh, tafsir. And he looks at both the aqal and the naqal. So looking at it, um, uh, and then he has his criticisms and the dangers also of um, speaking about the Qur'an without the requisite knowledge. In his jawahir, he's looking at these jewels and pearls. This is what he calls them. So the Quran, he says, is like an ocean filled with jewels and valuables. This is what I did last year. So this is the roadmap. And if you look at this, I mean, first of all, the intellect that that, that discerned this is just such a formidable and powerful intellect. And so this is really worth getting under your belt, so to speak. Um, this is the roadmap for him to God, which is what the Book of Allah is. It's, you know, one of the things that when, when you buy technology, they always have a user's manual. So like if you buy a car, nobody ever reads it and then they get into problems because it, or the women read it and the men don't. But, but the user's manuals are very useful because when you assemble something, you should read always the instructions before you assemble it. Because you'll you'll get into trouble So God has provided Every animal With their khalq and their huda he, he created the animal And then he guided it to its natural uh, Nature And this is why the Bedouin uh, Poet Said al-dhiba al-dhibu Uh Uh I heard the howl of the wolf and I felt comfort in hearing the howl of the wolf and then I heard a human voice and I almost flew out of my skin. So he's traveling in the desert and he hears a wolf and it's it's another creature so he feels some comfort but then he hears a man's voice and he's terrified. And the reason for that is with the wolf, you know exactly what you're going to get. But with the man, it could be a demon or it could be an angel. And you don't know until they reveal themselves. And this is the thing about human nature is if it's not guided, it it can go one of the two paths, right? Allah says, (inaudible) we guided man to the two paths. So there are two paths in life, the path of righteousness and the path of viciousness, the path of virtue and the path of vice. And this roadmap is exactly what the Quran is. It is the user's manual for the human being, for the creation of the human being. It gives us the ability to navigate our lives. and, and But it is a map and you have to learn it. Uh, and, and, and you have to make it operational. So you can talk about the journey but if you actually never set out with the map, you'll never arrive. And so life is a journey. It's a path. And we're on that path. The outward path is called shariqa, shari'a, which is in Arabic, a path to water. And for the desert uh, water, a path to water is a life-giving path. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, my Sahaba uh, come to me they come to me as ruwad, and the Prophet said that he was a ra'id, and he said, the, the, "The ra'id is the one who goes out in search of water for the clan when, they're, when they need water, and, and, and when he finds it, he goes back and tells them. So then he becomes a delil." So initially, he's called a ra'id. But once he finds the water, he's a dalil. So the Prophet said the sahaba were like a ruwad. They come for him looking for this life-giving water, what in the, the European tradition was called fons vitae, the water of life, the fountain of life. So they go out looking for that. And then when they find it, they come back and they can guide others to it. So the sharia is the path to that life-giving water. The, the tariqa is the inner path. To that, So the body has to make the journey That's called sharia But the soul has to make the journey That's called tariqah And then when you arrive you, you, you arrive by the sharia With the inward journey To the haqiqah Which is the reality And these terms are later terms But they're very useful terms In the same way that we have Grammatical terms that the sahaba didn't know So that's the roadmap. The Qur'an is the roadmap. So the Jawahar al-Quran, the jewels of the Qur'an, are he he, he divides it into the Muqaddimat wa-Sawabiq, the preliminary matters, So uh, and then the Maqasid, the six Maqasid of the Qur'an, and then the Lawahiq, the subsequent matters. Um, so the jewels of the Qur'an uh, relate to the Maqasid of the Qur'an. Uh, so he defines the... 763 verses are, he calls them jewels And then he has 741, he calls durar, pearls These are the two types of verses that he's identifying That essentialize the meaning of the book of Allah The first one is embodied in la ilaha illallah And the second one is embodied in Muhammad Rasulullah so all of the Quran can be divided into la ilaha illallah and muhammad rasulullah. La ilaha illallah are all the jawahir that tell you who your lord is. They tell you his nature, his attributes, uh, his actions, um what he wants from us, what he doesn't want from us, what will happen if we do what he wants, what will happen. If, and so the the it tells us about God. The 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 pearls are those that tell us about how to get to God. Now, it's very interesting that he chose to use jewels because the jewel is formed uh, in the earth, but the pearl is formed in an animal. And the pearl, and and one of the things Shiladina Rumi says is that the heart uh, is, he says, it's like encased in the mother of pearl. And the pearl emerges because of sand that gets into the, the oyster. And so the oyster releases this um, to encase, the, the in the same way that in, in, when you get sick, very often your body will actually put something around the, the, uh, what's harmful in the body to protect the body from it. So it will actually isolate what's dangerous. So what happens with the this aggravation inside the oyster shell is what creates the pearl. And so what he's saying is that Allah is going to aggravate you with all these trials and tribulations. And if you respond appropriately, you your heart will become like that pearl that that it, it's it's the aggravations and the tribulations of life that will actually bring you into that beautiful state now you have to dive into the ocean to get the pearls so it's the deep dive that he's asking us to take in life not to stay at the shore not to look at the ocean and say oh it's nice no to to go in and so that's what 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 he's doing so these are like for instance just to give you some examples this is the first one that he uses about the jawahar. He made for you the earth a firash. What is a firash? A firash is a bed. al Razi says The earth is neither too hard nor too soft. It's perfect to build on because if it was too hard, you couldn't build on it. If it was too soft, you couldn't build on it. If it was rock, you couldn't build on it. If it was sand, you couldn't build on it. But he made it this perfect... uh uh, like a bed, because you don't want a, a bed that's too hard, you're uncomfortable, and you don't want a bed that's too soft uh, because uh, you won't you'll wake up uh, in a bad state. So and then he and was a. So he made the heaven a canopy, a roof. What does a roof do? It protects you. Now we know that we're getting constantly bombarded with radiation and we've got Van Allen's belts that are protecting us. We know now that we really do have a roof. Over the earth that's protecting us from cosmic radiation. And then the life giving water. And then so he brought forth from the heaven, the, he sent down this water and it brought forth the, the provision, the fruits of the earth, as a provision for you. So do not set up undad. The nid is somebody. Who is equal to God And nobody شي, لم, uh, لم These ayahs are really important بذارك, Everything that occurs to your mind Allah is other than that And so the nid is the opposite And that's why a man once came to the Prophet And, and, and he said something And he said if, if God wants and you want He said don't put me equal with God because the wow makes it like they're equal so so you're supposed to say in in shita. you know you you say something that, that shows you the separation the difference uh, as opposed to a conjunctive uh, approach and so uh and then ta'lamun. this is a beautiful this is in Arabic it's called a jumla halia this is important because people that Associate idols with God out of ignorance unless the message comes to them they're مكلفين, According to the dominant school and so Allah is telling us once you know Don't do that if you're living in ignorance Then Allah doesn't take people into account until he sends a messenger the Mu'tazirite said you know نبعثى, You know we, we don't punish them until we send a, a Rasul the Mu'tazirite said it was the that that the the, the, the Maturidiya, the Ash'ari, and the Athari they say no, it's the Rasul that has to come, and the Maturidi have a nice nuance uh, about that too because they do recognize some um, responsibility with with tamiz and aqal So another one is: "If my servants ask about me, say I'm near." I will answer the call of the one calling The prayer of the one calling When he calls me So let them respond to me In other words, if you want God to respond to your prayers Respond to his call And the word is the same So God calls us And we call God Why should we expect God to answer our prayers If we're not answering his call It's even though Allah is Rahman Rahim, nonetheless we should answer His call. So, and then He says, bi let them or Yuminu, let them believe in Me, uh, in order for them to be rightly guided." Rushd, which is uh, kind of intelligence in your behavior, so prudence, you know, being Rashid. Uh, and then Shahid Allah and Hula ilaha inahu. Wal malaikatu. Wool al ilmi ka iman bil kista. La ilaha inahu al Azizul hakeem. In Nadina and Allah al Islam. So Allah uh, testifies that there is no God but Huwa, except for God. Well and the angels. Allah puts, and this is very interesting because these are ma'tuf. So it's ma'tuf Allah testifies. The angels testify. And those who have knowledge. This is this is uprightness and justice. Repeat it again. Al Aziz al-Hakim. wa Hakama. Allah is Al-Aziz al-Hakim. Inna and Allah al-Islam verily and this is taqeed you know it's for it's taqeed Allah is asserting and and you do this when somebody might have some doubt about it that's when you use it he could have said and Allah al-Islam but when he said inna dinu 'inda Allah al-Islam it's it's for anybody who has any doubt dispel that doubt this is God speaking and saying that the religion with God is al-Islam and you know, some translate that as submission, which is true, but it also means the religion that the Prophet ﷺ gave. So it's not simply submission. It, it's both submission and this religion that we call Al Islam. And then also another Jawar Yatiru Illa there's not a creature and. Is so anything that crawls on the earth is a daba. There's not a creature in the earth, nor a, uh, a a bird flying with its two wings, except that they are communities like unto you. I mean, now we know this in with zoology. I mean these, we, it's amazing the communities of animals and and how they commune with one another, how they live, all these things, they actually have pilgrimages. I wrote an essay on this, about all the amazing pilgrimages that animals do to these places. Even the butterflies, the monarch butterfly goes to one place, Uh, birds will fly uh, across the ocean. It's quite stunning what they do, fly across the ocean. And one of the things about the birds when they're in flight, they say, is that they will literally forego any temptations on the journey. They're completely focused. So even if they see like a fish that they would normally get, they will focus and not be distracted, which is why uh, in the great um, poem of the uh, the birds, the 30 birds that set out uh, for God, I mean, uh, the Persian poet used the, the, the birds as an analogy of that. And so and then Allah says, We have not omitted anything from this book. You know, there's one of this uh, Syrian scholars, an Orientalist, said to him, Do you really believe that, you know, that God hasn't omitted anything in the book? He said, Absolutely. He said, So you can tell me like how many loaves of bread you could cook in a in a uh in a bag of flour? And he said, it, it's in the Qur'an. He said, where? And he told one of his students, go get so-and-so. So he went and got him, he came He said, how many loaves in a, in a bag of flour? He said, the little bag, I can get five out of it. The big bag, I can get 20. And, he, and he, he said, well, th- there's your answer. He said, that's not in the Qur'an. He said, yes, it is. Allah says khabira, ask an expert. And he said, he's the baker. I have an audience here that's completely silent. <laughs> if you have permission to laugh. <laughs> that's like you know these poor um, comedians that say something and then nobody laughs. It's a horrible feeling. <laughs> so and then the another Jawhar ya ardu it's amazing. This is one of the most extraordinary, rhetorically extraordinary verses. Um, it's really a stunning verse. Then it was said, Earth, swallow up your water, and sky, hold back. And the water subsided. The command was fulfilled. The ark settled on the Mount of Judy. And it was said, Gone are those evil doing people. Uh, and then, ya This is it now in the pearl. So I'm just giving examples from these. So this is now related to the path. All those other ones were about God and how and how God operates in the world. This is about the path. This is the very first commandment in the Quran. Iqra is the first commandment linearly. This is the first commandment uh, uh, chronologically. This is the first commandment linearly in the book. So, this is the very first commandment that Allah gives in His book, telling us to worship our Lord who created us. So, don't get into Dawr and Taselsul. This actually negates Dawr and Taselsul, which is amazing because these are the two problems, what they call the chicken and egg problem in philosophy. In order to ward off harm, in order to, to guard yourselves, uh, but also to be mindful, to be conscientious. So the allegories of the jewels and the valuables in the Quran, he goes into these symbols. So he he has he has these names: the red brimstone, at Kibrit al al the What he's showing is One of Imam al-Ghazali's contentions is everything in creation has a meaning. That the physical presence of it is, has to be penetrated in order to get to the meaning. So for instance, uh, Shaykh Ibn al-Habib in his Diwan, he says, That Allah's creation are are meanings set up in images And whoever understands these meanings Is from the people of discernment And so he's using these To show you that everything Is like What is an antidote Well an antidote will Protect you from sumum. But he's saying that the Quran is an antidote And so so This thing that's in the world Has a metaphysical reality What is al-kibrit al-ahmar the the red um the red brimstone or the red sulfur was a an alchemical term that was used for it was a substance that's apparently extremely rare and whoever finds it is able to transmute lead into gold and so he uses this as a metaphor for the spiritual path that transmutes the toxic lead of the nafs into the spiritual gold of the ruh uh, and also al miskat adfar so this is something that um, that somebody, for instance, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. The, the beauty of oud uh, or musk is that it, this smell comes from it, and so those righteous people. What he's saying is that it's similar to that. Is that the the the, the presence that they have is like fragrant musk, and uh, and then alos. It's only when you burn it that it produces a beautiful smell. And so this is another metaphor that sometimes Allah has to burn you in order to bring forth what's what's beautiful. And so these, again, are the trials and tribulations of life. So he uses these as analogies um, for them. And so he says that, Alice wood is smoke rising from the ashes of God's punishment of hypocrites and his enemies brings great benefit to believers The fame of a person of knowledge spreads everywhere like musk, even if that person prefers obscurity So one of the things uh, Ibn Ataylah says He says that um, that, uh, that whoever worships, you know, wants obscurity is Abdul Al-Khumul Like if you want obscurity, then you're a slave of obscurity if you want fame, you're a slave of fame. And he said, Abdullah the sermon of God is the same whether He, he makes him well known or He keeps him in, in obscurity. And Marabt al Hajj, I heard him on several occasions say, Al-Khumul that obscurity is a great blessing that people refuse. And fame is a great tribulation that people desire. And the Prophet said it's enough for a fitna for a person that people, when he walks by, they point at him with their fingers. They say, oh, there goes so-and-so. And and many people that become famous, they, they end up really wishing. I mean, there are some people that are addicted to these things, but they wish that they had... Uh, Remain in obscurity And then he says that the antidote Is cures from the poisons of heresy Passions and errors entering the soul And then the kibrit al-ahmar That which turns the essence of the soul From the vices of a beast and the error of ignorance To the purity of the angels and their spirituality So these are all things And then he gives an incredible Presentation of al-Fatiha Opening up these eight doors of paradise Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim According to uh, the majority of uh, the Qurra begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Imam Nafi' His recitation begins with Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Almeen Ar-Rahman ar-Rahim again Maliki Yawmideen or Maliki Yawmideen Or Maliki Yawmideen There's different uh, iterations of that Iyyaka na'abudu wa iyyaka nasta'een Yehdina sirat al mustaqim. Sirat al-lazina an'amta alihim Ghayr al-maghdubi alihim wal-adhalim so, Alhamdulillah, those are the, um, that was a review just of what we did last year in all the sessions. So, you, I, I wanted to bring it back so that we could then look at these. And there are a few things that I wanted to, the book that I'm going to be using for this is a book based on the Jawahir. So, this translation was done by Dr. Thomas Cleary. Um, it's called The Essential Qur'an, The Heart of Islam, An Introductory Selection of Readings from the Qur'an. So Dr. Cleary, uh, rahimahullah, uh, I think uh, did us a, a great service in this book because it's an incredibly accessible book for a lot of people um, to get to the heart of the Qur'an without having to read the entire Qur'an. And the uh, the notes that he wrote in the back are really, really quite stunning. But... One of the most beautiful aspects of this book is the introduction. And I think that um, he really gave us a a beautiful uh, summation of of the purpose of the Quran in that. Um, So that's the book that I'm going to be using, but I also wanna draw your attention. I will, on Sunday, I'm gonna be talking about this book with the book club before I uh, talk about The Arbery's translation. So, this book is by Bruce Lawrence. It's from the Lives of Great Religious Books from Princeton uh, University Press. It's called the Quran, K O R A N, and he distinguishes between Quran, which is Arabic, and Quran, which is translation. So, he actually prefers to keep the old, which is the same one that Dr. Clear used here. most Muslims prefer the transliterated one where you have A-L-Q-U-R, and then have a, uh, a little uh, apostrophe for the, the, the Hamza uh, Qur'an like that. But he, this is a biography of the Qur'an in English. And one of the things that is important for us to come to terms with is that English has become a preeminent Islamic language for whatever reasons. It's my native tongue. It's not my ancestors' native tongue. Uh, My ancestors' native tongue was Gaelic, but it is my native tongue now because the English colonized Ireland and Scotland and and cut their tongues out for speaking Gaelic. So um, 800 years of that. Now the Irish are actually quite eloquent in the English language. In fact, they're noted for their poetry. so, but it is an important language. It's the language of academia. Many people from other countries write in English. Uh, most scientific papers have to ultimately be published in English to be well read. So it's become a really important religious language. We forget that the South Asians were colonized from 18... from. Uh, the uh, late uh, 18th century, uh, well into the 20th century, 1947, the Indian subcontinent, which is one of the most important lands of Islam, uh, was colonized by the British. The British basically instituted English as a formal language in education. Uh, The South Asians actually became very, very skilled at English. Uh, Many of them read English literature. and, uh, And for that reason, some of the best translations of the Quran were actually originally produced by South Asians. Um, believe it or not, the the reason why the uh, Indian and Pakistanis began, and originally they were all Indian, um, but the, the reason why the Indians uh, translated the Quran was because they actually wanted to address the mistranslations of the ones that were in English that were translated by religious Uh, Usually Protestants that wanted to proselytize in the Muslim world So they were responses And one of the the main movements against the religious proselytization proselytization of Christianity in India Was the Ahmadiyya movement Um, uh, So this is how Ghulam Ahmed became famous Because he would debate uh, the Christians And one of his students, uh, Mawlana Muhammad Ali uh, did the uh, the uh, Ahmadi Quran, uh, which is um, published in Ohio, and still can be found in almost any bookstore in the United States, because they've been um, publishing that Quran. I think it's in its 50th edition. Um, there, there are other uh, great translations of the Quran that come later. Uh, you have Marmaduke Pickthall who was influenced by, he was at the Woking Masjid in, um, in England, which was an Ahmadi Masjid. So he's actually influenced by the Mawlana Muhammad Ali translation, but he was a very famous um, uh, novelist in England and he became Muslim. He's actually one of the most prominent English people to become Muslim. And he wrote, uh, he, he ended up learning Arabic Uh, The Nizam of Hyderabad who at the time was the single richest man in the world. He was I don't want to Compare him odiously to some of our oligarchs Uh, Just interesting aside here. I kind of was fascinated by the fact that the all the Russian billionaires are called oligarchs But they don't call our billionaires oligarchs. I mean, that's a very interesting so the uh, the, uh, he was a billionaire by today's standards, and he basically was the patron of Marmaduke Pickthall. He gave him a good salary, and he was able to translate the Quran in Hyderabad, where he was living at the time. It became a very important Quran. Uh, A.J. Arberry, who was a professor, he was a student of Dr. Nicholson, he also did what I think is the, the most eloquent in English of the translations of the Quran. We can debate on these things, and I know there's a lot of debates about that, but uh, I would say that. Now, the other resource that I wanna to bring to light here is the lights of revelation. This this is such an incredible work. And I have to say, uh, Dr. Jabril Fuad Haddad, who is a really brilliant uh, scholar, incredibly meticulous, and really, really knows the tradition. He, I know one of his teachers was Sheikh Muhammad al and Sheikh Muhammad al who's a brilliant Arabist and Islamic scholar, but really, really deeply steeped in the Arabic language. Um, he 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 really praised him as a student. He said he was really an excellent student. But he has become a sheikh in his own right. This is a fantastic. If you want to. To take a deep dive into how our great scholars looked at the Quran. This is the first Hizb of the Quran, translated. It has the Arabic. For those that can read Arabic, it actually has the Arabic in it. But it's it's really a stunning work. And, and the meticulousness, I mean, the 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 amount of scholarship that went into this, this is worth 10 PhDs in my estimation. Um, the uh yeah, so, and then the book, this is Arabic. This is a very nice uh, edition of Imam al-Baghoui. It's a slightly abridged edition, but Imam al-Baghoui and Imam al-Baghoui were the two most popular uh, madrasa tafsirs. The Jalalain was a, 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 a very basic tafsir, and it's very useful. And there is an edition that was done by a. a the translator Aisha Buley, uh, who's an American. She actually did her Arabic at at University of Berkeley nearby, Berkeley University, UC Berkeley. But she lives in England, and she's translated many works. But she actually did a translation for Taha publications of the Jalalain. The Jalalain is an incredibly useful uh, aid to understanding the Qur'an because it fills in a lot of the lacunae. And one of the um, uh, students that, that was at a Rehla in Singapore. We were actually in Malaysia, but she was from Singapore. Really wonderful um, Khadima, somebody who did a lot of work for the Singapore Muslim community. But she had taken a course uh, at university that really unsettled her. And one of, one of, because one of the things that the professor said is that the Quran is filled with lacunae. In other words, things that have to be filled in by commentary and she couldn't understand how a revelation, why would God uh, uh, give us a book that has these lacunae? And at the time, I, I don't think I gave her a, uh, the best answer, but it really got me thinking a lot about that. And one of the things that occurred to me was In in, in the ayah in which Allah says This is a reminder for you and your people Imam Malik said It's saying so-and-so said about the Qur'an uh, So-and-so said about the Qur'an So-and-so said So it's the isnad tradition And one of the really important aspects And something that I've focused on for probably 30 years Since I've come back to the United States is really trying to drive home to our community the importance of traditional chains of transmission Um, one of the few areas where it's really left is in tajweed because people still do learn tajweed based on a senate but in most of the other sciences and there's undeniably been a dilution of isnad so a lot of people you know go collect isnads and people give them freely and So it's not. It's just like you have diploma mills. So are you going to get the doctor who trained at Johns Hopkins, or are you going to get the doctor uh, that you know is a quack and and uh, you know got got a naturopathic uh, diploma from a uh, you know an online course they did for six weeks. I mean, there are people that do that. You know, it's quite, and that's not to say because naturopathic there are naturopathic colleges that are are reputable, um, like the one in Portland, and I think Harvard actually has now a naturopathic program. So uh, that that's the difference. So it's very important to know that um, you know the importance of of chains of transmission and. and that's why I think there are lacunae, is because Allah has forced us to be reliant on transmission, that the Quran has to be transmitted in that way. The Prophet explained the Quran to his people. His life was an explanation of it. And uh, in, in, any, uh, in any case, those are just some initial reflections. Um, so uh, the first question comes in, how much of the Quran is literal and how much is metaphorical, or ambiguous? Can we rely on one particular approach in understanding the Quran or should we apply different approaches? There are, the Quran has, there are very few actual hazy verses in the Quran uh, that are problematic, but there are many things in the Quran that can be taken metaphorically. The, the methodology of Ahl-Sunnah Is not to esotericize the Qur'an But to recognize that there are esoteric interpretations The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith That the Quran, every ayah has a had And it has a zahrun and a batnun And a muttala' or a matla' So the, he's indicating that there are four levels of interpretation And in even in traditional Western uh, Christian interpretation. They had four levels of interpretation, so they had the the uh, historical, the al- the allegorical, the the moral, and then the anagogical. So there are ways, multiple ways of interpreting things. So, for instance, uh, it, it, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says that some of the verses are hazy, mutashabihat, and then others are uh, they're they 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 are muhkam. They're, 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 محكم, they're they're, they're clear in their meanings. And those who have sickness in their heart tend to esotericize and wander off into the occult. Um, so we, we, uh, we, we're, we're people of the inward and the outward, and we assert that there has to be a balance between the two. That's, that's the Sunni tradition, and, and the Shia really also. Next question. For someone beginning to read the Qur'an in translation, how can the jewels of the Qur'an be discovered without one being overwhelmed? It was a good question. I mean, we have to recognize the limits of translation, but also we have to recognize the benefits of translation. So even reading the Qur'an in Arabic, if you're not trained in balagha, in nahu, and sarf, you have to be very careful. And not many people, even modern Arabs who've gone through 12 years of Arabic education, or even into college, they don't have the type of grammatical skills or rhetorical skills that people that went to traditional madrasa acquired and still acquire in places where where they're focused on. So you still have, I mean, there's great grammarians in Mauritania. Cheikh Abdul Benbeya is an extraordinary grammarian. He's a rhetorician, he's a logician. And so you have to be careful uh, translations are problematic. They, they. Um, there are many possibilities. Some verses, literally, you will get. In, it's not that common, but in some of the commentaries, you'll get very, extremely different interpretations, as if they're almost like completely opposite. So, Imam Al Ghazali's work can sometimes roughly be divided into works for scholars and works for the average Muslim. That's true. Where do the jewels of the Quran fit in? I think it fits in an educated Muslim. I think if you're, if you have a good level of education and I'm I'm not talking about so so much Islamic education, I think you can benefit greatly from the jewels of the Quran. Uh, But it's a really good question because uh, there are works that are for scholars. And then there are works, I I look at it like prescription and over the counter. Um, You know, there's things you can buy over the counter and they're not going to be harmful. You read the side and it, you know, it says, you know, it might say, we recommend that you ask your doctor before you use this. So, uh, but generally over the counters are, are pretty safe, uh, but even Tylenol can kill. So even with just going, um, you can get into trouble. So you just have to be careful. But I, I do believe that we should, if we don't have access to the Arabic, my first reading—I became Muslim from reading the Quran. Uh, Dr. Almar became Muslim from reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, there's different ways to get to Islam, but my experience was with George Sale's Quran, which is pretty amazing because that's a really old. That was that 1734 uh, was, and George Sale. The first one was uh, Robert of Ketton. Uh, Back in the in 1643 was the first translation into Latin, which is actually considered a good translation. Apparently in Latin, my Latin's too rusty to read that. But, um, but uh, George Sale, there was an argument because it was reprinted in America in 1832, I think, and they actually in the introduction claimed that he was probably a crypto Muslim because he 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 was too he was. He was too uh, 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 relatively neutral, not entirely. I mean, he does, you know. They, you, they people people have to realize that at that time you had to say nasty things about Islam, or you'd be accused of being a Muslim and could really get into trouble. Uh, it was a different world, and so a lot of people don't understand that 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 uh, about that nature of that time. Is there any methodology, method meth Methodical common ground between how Al-Ghazali approached the Quranic text And the way Ibn al-Arabi approaches it Well there's two Ibn Arabis I mean there are more than two but the two Main ones when you're talking about the Quran Tend to be Qadi Abu Bakr Ibn al-Arabi who uh, Was a student Of Imam al-Ghazali's And He was largely Although he had a commentary that was apparently Multi-volume Unfortunately it it, it was lost with the fall of Andalusia. But he did do a four volume known as ah, Ahkam al Quran. If you're talking about Muhideen ibn al Arabi, uh, who was a 13th century uh, scholar, muhaddith, mufassir, and mystic, and he's more known for um, what some people term theosophy, which is sp- like spiritual philosophy. But I. Uh, if, so I don't know which one you, you you mean, but I would say in terms of Ibn Arabi, the Qadi, uh, he's very much focused on Ahkam al-Quran, but it has beautiful insights. If you want his more um, spiritual book, it's called Siraj al- al-Muridin, which is a fantastic book that got published beautifully. It was a book I waited for 25 years for, and it was finally... Done in a really good edition by a friend of mine from Algeria. Um, so it's it's a stunning book, Siraj al-Muridin, and has just amazing insights into it. Um, and he does deal with the Quran. Ibn al-Arabi did there is a, a, a tafsir, there's a tafsir attributed to him, which I bought in Fez in 1978, uh, my first trip to Fez. Um, I actually bought it in a bookstore, and I, I could have no, it wouldn't be possible for me to have been able to read it at that time, but, but I did buy it. So I have that copy still in my library. That was probably written by his student Al Qashani, but it uses a methodology in which is consistent. What, if you read just a few chapters, you will learn his methodology and then it becomes relatively easy to navigate what he's doing. So usually for instance, Ard, he'll interpret as the heart. Allah brings the earth back to life after its death. So the heart is the place of cultivation. It's where you cultivate good deeds or you cultivate bad deeds. So you're sowing seeds in your heart and you water that, that heart with either good deeds or bad deeds. So the seeds grow and the heart either becomes virtuous or vicious. And so what he's, that, that, that's one of his approaches. Um, it doesn't deny the outward either. And so he was not a esotericist. I mean, Ibn, Ar- Ibn Arabi, he's usually said without the Alif Lam, Ibn Arabi. And Ibn Taymiyyah has his criticisms, particularly the Fusus al-Hikam. But Ibn Taymiyyah does say that he benefited greatly from his book, the Futuhat. So Ibn Taymiyyah read Ibn Arabi. I would not recommend Ibn Arabi. I am not an Ibn Arabi scholar by any stretch. Um, I, I have read in the Futuhat, um, but I, I would not recommend it's that level of uh, is for. It's like trying to go to a a quantum physics book before you've learned basic physics. So I I would not recommend it. And Sidi Ahmed Zarruq who I feel more close to, uh, Sidi Ahmed Zarruq asked his Sheikh about Ibn Arabi, and he said a Taslim. In other words, I don't want to say anything. And he asked him again. He said, look, some people say he was a qutb, and some people say he wasn't a Muslim. <laughs> he said, I say it taslim. You know, mm-hmm. just stay out of the debate. Yeah, you don't want to make takfir of people that aren't kafir. And um, there's, there's a book by, uh, I think it's called Tanbih al-Ghabi, Liman Kafara ibn Arabi. You know, waking up the idiot uh, in his making takfir of Ibn Arabi, the uh, Sulty. So, uh, you know, Ibn Arabi was highly honored in the Ottoman tradition, um, and but he is a he is a contentious um, uh, even amongst some of the great scholars. Uh, one of the greatest scholars of Islamic tradition is the great Ahmed Sirhindi, who's known as Uh, Mujaddid al-Thani, the renewer of the second uh, millennium. He did not agree with Ibn Arabi, and he actually wrote uh, his own understanding of Tawheed to uh, counter uh, the understanding that was presented by Ibn Arabi. But he didn't make takfir. These are debates. Um, so we should be very careful about these. I just want to ask if there are any tips for a mother who struggles with a baby and at the same time wants to finish the Quran and understand it. Well, first of all, you get a great reward in struggling with your baby. Um, Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So sometimes, you know, you just have these problems. One of the great um, stories that we have in in the Western tradition is the story of... um, the Pied Piper of Hamlin, which is about a rat infestation in this town. And so this Piper comes to town and says he can get rid of all the rats. And, um, and so he pipes them all out and they follow him and he, he, he destroys them, but then they won't pay him. So he gets really angry. So he pipes the children out and they all go into a cave and disappear and they lose their children. I I liken that to people that use the television to get rid of the ratty at the pesty aspect of children. Um, You're you're gonna pay the piper by losing your children. So it's very important just to be patient with children. Um, The idea of leaving a child crying, uh, a a young infant crying uh, like this, That's how the, the, they say the generation of the Nazis was a result of a kind of Dr. Spock-like book that was published in the 1880s on how to raise children. And, And it was all about punitive measures. It was all about not, you know, letting them cry themselves to sleep. It created a generation of people that lost empathy. So it's really important to have empathic children. The way you get that According to Erickson, a uh, psychi- psych- uh, psychologist that I really liked when I was I read psychology in college, you know, he had the, these um, crises, developmental crises. And the first one was trust versus mistrust. So if a child knows that it's in a trustworthy family, it's going to resolve that crisis. But if you're ignoring the child, it's gonna really traumatize that child early on. Uh, And I'm more and more convinced that most of the problems in the world are a direct result of childhood trauma. Um, Do you have any reflections on N.J. Dawood's attempt to present the Quran in the order of revelation rather than compilation? How reliable is the order he offers? Uh, N.J. Dawood's an interesting, um, this is one of the important translations that emerges in the 19th century. Um, It was published uh, at the turn of the century in i think the everyman library or something so it actually became quite widely read it's still in print um we do know that imam ali had a a a mushaf that was based on the actual dates of revelation so imam ali kept that and but it's lost and Ibn Juzay al-Kalbi said, if we had it, we would have access to great knowledge. So it's unfortunate. There, there are some interesting aspects to what he did. It's not entirely uh, verifiable, but some of it is. I mean, we do know when some things were revealed. Um, although one of the miracles of the Quran is that as it was coming down, Jibril was saying, put this here, put this there. And so which is a much more miraculous way to to do a book. I mean, it wasn't just given to him in any linear fashion. So, um, yeah, I would take that with a grain of milh. Next one. Okay, I got it. You don't have to spell it out. <laughs> Can you please shed light on the idea of a poetic translation of the Quran? We have a popular poetic translation of the Quran in the Sindhi language by Mulfi Ahmed Mallah. I mean, I would argue that the Quran is stunningly powerful. We don't call it shi'r out of Adab to the Quran, but to use the word, uh, you know, somebody who watched Gary Wills as what is the Quran they, they we got some emails saying oh he called it poetry well if you look up poetry in the in, in the dictionary it has different meanings and one of them is just beautiful language like we could say his speech was pure poetry just meaning it was really beautiful and eloquent that's all it means so there is a translation right now I think it's being done by Br- Dr. Bruce Lawrence. I don't know if he's finished it, but he wrote this book on um, the Quran in English. And he's actually doing one in verse, which I personally wouldn't do um, because the Quran says, wa wa ma You know, we did not teach him poetry and it's not appropriate for him. Um, the great Algerian mujahid and scholar, uh, Amir Abdul Qadir al Jaza'iri, الله anhu, who fought the French uh, and was a scholar in his own right, has an incredible commentary on the Quran called al moakif it's, it's really one of the most amazing books I've ever read. But he in, he has a book called Tanbih al-Ghafil um, that I read many, many years ago and, and really benefited from it. He says in that book that the reason that the, 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 they call the prophets poets is because a poet is doing something that other people can't do. And, and when you hear a great poet, uh, it, it just it's quite amazing. And and so there's a there's a there's an inspiration that is clearly part of a great poet. In fact, many poets will tell people that they just the poem was there. Uh, Robert Frost talks about that. And then there's the craft of poetry also, but um, the the Quran is definitely not poetry, but whoever translates it, should really have an extraordinary gift with the language he's translating it into. One of the reasons why I really, really like Dr. Cleary's translation, alaykum, is that he he has this minimalist style, which and the Quran is very very minimalist, despite its extraordinary eloquence. It has a, a really stunning um, conciseness, what's called ijaz. It has iltanab, but generally ijaz is is and and he really. He has that, and he has a, um, a just a very interesting word diction. Um, one of the things that um, Bruce, uh, Dr. Bruce, uh, says about um, Dr. Cleary's translation, he says um, that. He actually mentions me in light of, because he he does say, um, and he he, he, does, there's an American who who did his own uh, translation of the Quran. He's not a Muslim, but uh, his name's Sandow Burke, and he mined Cleary for constructing his own hybrid version of the Quran. But he had read, he he did it because he wanted Americans to know more about Islam after 9-11. But one of the things that he said is he read all these different commentaries, but it was, Dr. Cleary's commentary that really grabbed him. Um, but because it was in copyright, he didn't use it. He ended up using one that was out of copyright. But Dr. Cleary, he says here that um, the translation is, it, it can be problematic, right? Because for instance, uh, that he seems to lose his way in rendering evil as ill. A drastic de reading of what are often used as apotropaic texts, and that's because in in uh, in in the the chapter Anas, he says, "In the name of God, the Compassionate, the Merciful." He says, uh, or in dawn rather, right? He says, "Say, I take refuge in the Lord of Dawn." from the ill of what is created and from the ill of darkness when it's gloomy and from the ill of those who curse and from the ill of the envious when he envies. Now, Dr. Lawrence was criticizing him because he's saying it's uh, it's de-metaphysical reading because he's not using evil. But if you actually look up the word ill, the fourth meaning of it is Evil. And it's actually related etymologically to evil. And one of the things about shar in Arabic, it is not just evil. The Arabs call anything that's deficient shar. Like poverty is shar. So one of the things that really struck me about using ill there is that the last two surahs were given to the prophet as a protection because he was unsettled by some people who had who had done this these knots the eleven knots that they did and that's why there's eleven verses because eleven is the devil's number, and so there's eleven verses, and and in fact nine and eleven because they they it bypasses ten, which is one with power and and that this is in like occult tradition, anyway that's what I've read in in these books on occult numerology, so. Dr. Cleary understood that these ayahs were revealed to protect people from mental imbalances, from losing their way, from having waswasa, which is what we today know as compulsive thoughts, right? So obsessive, compulsive people. Those are illnesses, but 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 they have there's an evil when it comes from a demonic source, as opposed to say a natural imbalance that can occur from not sleeping, eating or drinking properly. So that's just one example of that. So I, my argument is that whoever translates the Quran must have an extraordinary knowledge of Arabic and an incredible sensibility in the English language if it's, they're going into English in Urdu into Urdu, Persian into Persian, that's what I would say. Alhamdulillah subhanak Allah wa bihamdika ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk wal asri innal insana lafi khusr illa alladhina amanu wa amilu salihata wa tawasaw bil haqqi wa tawasaw bis sabr Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless your ramadan inshallah Allahumma hilla alayna bil yumn wal iman wa salam musliman rabbina wa rabbuk Allah alhamdulillah jazakum Allah khairan wa assalamu alaykum inshallah we'll see you on thursday those of you that are going to come back and uh we'll see uh the 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 reading club the first command club is going to be open for everybody i mean technically it is in that if somebody can't we've never turned away people at zaytuna college if they if they they warranted acceptance we've never turned anybody away from lack of money and it really bothers me because a lot of people put out this propaganda somehow that Zaytun is elitist and that, uh, oh, it's too expensive. And this, well, education is expensive, but fortunately we have a lot of really generous uh, Muslims in the United States and around the world that have helped us build this college. We still want to do a lot more. So we really appreciate the support, but we never turn away people for lack of funds. It's never been our policy. People, I, I read this criticism of the Rehla. oh, how it's this bourgeois adventure where these rich people go and have... We've always had uh, poor people uh, that were given scholarships. We've never uh, gone... The Prophet said there's no good in a gathering that doesn't have poor people. And so we've never uh, promoted that. Uh, But the idea of not having uh, beautiful environments, our whole civilization was based on creating beautiful environments. I mean, this is Islam. It's a religion of ihsan. And we love ihsan. So unfortunately, there's a lot of wealth in the world and we hope that the wealthy people will support uh, the other people to do ihsan. So alhamdulillah. Thank you. Allah.